The Revolt of 2020 by Patrick Johnston. Copyright 2011 by Dr. Patrick Johnston. Read by Daniel Meyer. By kind permission of the author, this reading of The Revolt of 2020 is available for free distribution. Stay tuned at the end of this reading for more information and links to additional resources. Chapter 5 Welcome to Dennis Radman Live, the famous basketball player turned Fox late-night talk show host proclaimed. On this show, you will hear the issues of the day debated by the thinkers of the day. No soundbite small talk here, friends. And do we have a treat for you. Republican Congressman James Knight from Wyoming and Democratic Minority Leader Ken McGinnis from Massachusetts are here, along with Democratic Senate Minority Leader Tom Tyndale from New York. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for having us. Radman wasted no time and went right for James Knight's jugular. Mr. Knight, you're quite an oddity. You're not only the only African-American politician I've ever heard of coming from Wyoming, you're also one of the most conservative representatives in the House, and you have been the first congressman to publicly oppose the Justice for All initiative. How many people have to die, Mr. Knight, for you to realize that we must crack down on the kind of anti-abortion violence that killed President Fitzgerald and 3,000 others? Knight kept his cool, thinking that it was best to start by speaking a soft word that turns away anger. The families of the victims are all in our prayers. My heart is broken by the deaths of all those people. Many pro-lifers died in the blast as well. Nevertheless, killing thousands of innocent people can never be the answer for killing thousands of innocent people. The President's unconstitutional executive order subsidizes the killing of innocent children in the womb. McGinnis leaned forward in his chair. How can abortion be unconstitutional when the Supreme Court has repeatedly said it is constitutional? The Bill of Rights says that the government shall not deprive another of life or liberty without a trial by jury. But the Supreme Court... The Supreme Court, Knight raised his voice, cannot legitimately revoke the inalienable right to life and liberty. Those rights come from God, not man. Maybe Mr. Knight knows more about American jurisprudence than the Supreme Court, but I'm not that arrogant, Representative McGinnis stated mockingly. History, said Knight, is full of examples of human governments, including our government, justifying slavery, genocide, and all other forms of evil. Human courts and man-made laws cannot be the basis of morality and justice. God is the only standard of right and wrong. McGinnis grinned mischievously, thinking his opponent had just walked into a trap. First, abortion's wrong because it's unconstitutional, and now the Constitution's irrelevant because God said it's wrong. Which is it, sir? Which is it? Knight took a deep breath. When the Constitution is interpreted to justify evils like slavery or abortion, it deserves amendment, not because the Constitution is the ultimate arbiter of what is lawful, but because the Constitution should conform to divine law. The Sixth Commandment, do not murder, trumps every contrary human opinion. That's quite a stretch, applying the commandment against murder to fertilized eggs. What an absurd proposition. A human being is a member of the Homo sapiens species. Offspring of humans are humans, Mr. McGinnis and if they grow and develop, then they're alive. Dead things don't grow. The human embryo is just as alive and just as human as you. According to any dictionary, a person is defined as a human being. McGinnis turned his gaze towards Dennis Radman. This is exactly the kind of hate speech that the Justice for All initiative is attempting to halt. This is the ideology to which the president referred when she spoke of the homegrown terrorists in our country who wield the Bible to justify violence against those with whom they disagree. If people start acting like embryos are real people, they might start taking up arms to protect them. Mr. Knight's speech creates an atmosphere of violence and hatred, James Knight interrupted the minority leader. Killing babies creates an atmosphere of violence and hatred. And where is all this incontrovertible evidence that a pro-life group or person was responsible for this explosion? Scientists and philosophers have grappled with this issue of when life begins for decades, Senator Tyndale asserted, and there is nothing near unanimity on the issue. 
We have no idea when life begins. It's part of the mother's body. As a Planned Parenthood attorney for a decade before his run for political office, he was skilled at puffing smoke and flashing mirrors into the debate over the onset of human life. Knight reached into his briefcase for something. Since when does a reproductively mature woman's body have male genitals, Senator? Life is from conception to death, and no arbitrary point in between makes it any more of a human being or any more alive than the moment before. Let our viewers decide for themselves. Knight unrolled a laminated poster of an 18-week-old human fetus sucking his thumb. This is an enlargement of a photograph that was first seen in a life educational reprint from the early 1960s called Life Before Birth. See, even way back then we knew that life existed before birth. Looks like a little baby, doesn't it? The senator responded, indistinguishable from a monkey fetus. Does this look like a monkey fetus? Knight flipped the poster and revealed a photo of an aborted fetus corpse in a contorted position. Or does it look like a dead baby? McGinnis and Tyndale simultaneously protested the unveiling of the photograph of the bloody corpse on live television. This is preposterous, Tyndale shouted. Dennis Radman glanced nervously at the cameraman as if he were tempted to go quickly to a commercial break. You don't have permission to do that, Mr. Knight. Why the censorship? You cannot have an honest discussion on this issue if you censor the victims of the crimes you are justifying. If it's just a blob of tissue, what's the big deal? This is totally inappropriate, Mr. Knight, Radman protested. Knight knew that he was walking a thin line, so he consented and placed his poster back into his briefcase. When I say I am pro-choice, Tyndale reminded the listening audience, I am not saying I am pro-abortion. I am personally against abortion. Nevertheless, unlike my counterpart, he said, motioning toward Knight, I respect every person's right to choose what is right for them. Abortion is a religious question, and I do not think the government should be involved in private religious matters. We have a constitution that ensures a wall of separation between church and state. The issue is not, is abortion right or wrong? The issue is, who decides, the government or the woman in a crisis pregnancy? I trust the women of America to make the decision that is right for them. Senator, before we decide whether we should be pro-choice or not, we need to decide what the choice is. If the choice is ripping a child to pieces inside the womb, then we need to be against that choice. He raised his voice at the end of that last sentence to be heard over the mumblings of Ken McGinnis and Tom Tyndale. McGinnis was downright angry. That's hate speech. If you don't watch it, Mr. Knight, you're going to wind up censured by Congress or maybe even arrested. Knight laughed and responded sarcastically, I'm so scared. Tell me this, Mr. Knight, asked Congressman McGinnis. What would you say to the young 12-year-old who is facing a life of poverty and has just discovered that she is pregnant after her uncle raped her? Tyndale followed up on that thought with a hypothetical scenario of his own. Or what would you say to the 35-year-old career woman who has just discovered she is carrying a severely deformed pregnancy that won't even survive outside the womb anyway? Would you force them against their will to carry that pregnancy to term? Would you prosecute them if they got an abortion? Well, that is... Would you take away their right to choose, Mr. Knight? Well, that is a simple question to answer if one will just stick to reason and resist the emotional manipulation. While I sympathize with the pregnant girl under such circumstances, I also sympathize with the girl who exists inside her mother's womb. Why can't we love them both? Why do we have to pit one against the other? No one is pitting anybody against anybody else, Mr. Knight. You're pitting an assassin against handicapped babies and rape victims. The baby's a victim and doesn't deserve to be executed because he's handicapped or because his daddy was a rapist. As a nation, we are pitting ourselves against God Almighty when we legalize and fund the slaughter of innocent children. We are in danger of divine judgment. You know what hypocrisy is, Dennis, said Representative McGinnis with a tone of disgust. James Knight has been one of the most vocal proponents of capital punishment, and here he is appealing to the authority of the Creator to prevent a rape victim from receiving reproductive health services, calling himself pro-life, huh? McGinnis shook his head with abhorrence at the extremism of his congressional colleague. Killing a baby isn't a health service, Mr. McGinnis, and I'm not the one in this conversation defending the taxpayer-subsidized execution of handicapped babies. We're not. We're not doing that. We're defending a woman's right to choose and the president's right to shut you up, McGinnis replied sternly.
You mourn the deaths of those abortionists and abortion advocates. But what of the 3,500 children who have been ripped to shreds in their mother's womb every day? Well, maybe not this week since their appointments with the abortionists had to be canceled. Those babies are much safer this week than they were last week. What? McGinnis and Tyndale exclaimed simultaneously, shocked at Knight's extremely insensitive comment. Are you trying to tell us that you are glad that those abortion providers were killed in that blast? Radman asked. Knight was undeterred by the shock on the faces of his ideological opponents next to him. No, but let's try to see the glass half full. Jesus said it'd be better for a man to have a millstone hung around his neck and be cast into the depths of the sea than to harm one of God's little children. Pro-lifers mourn the deaths of these abortionists, but we also mourn the deaths of the innocent children, and we rejoice that thousands of babies are alive this week because those appointments were canceled. That comment had the effect of a percussion grenade explosion in the middle of the room. Get him off! Get him off! Radman could faintly hear a voice in the back of the studio. He squinted through the glare of the lights and saw the cameraman look behind him nervously. Radman's face blushed as red as a light-skinned black man's could get. We need to go to a quick break. We'll be right back to let Congressman McGinnis respond. The Samuels were stunned by the exchange that played on television between James Knight and the two liberals. Pastor Samuels muted the television during the commercials and turned to his wife. I can't believe he can get away with saying that. Well, that remains to be seen. I think someone is knocking on the door. I'll get it. Pastor Samuels lifted his obese frame out of his lazy boy with a grunt and went to the door. He looked through the curtain and noticed two men in dull ties and dark sports coats standing at his front door. His heart sank. He had known this moment would come any day now. He unlocked the door and opened it. The larger of the two men flashed an identification badge. Mr. Ronald Samuels, we are from the Federal Bureau of Investigation. We have some questions to ask you about David Jamison and Jared Keaton. Just a second. Ron Samuels surprised them when he suddenly shut the door. The two agents at the door looked at each other, frowned, and without hesitating, firmly knocked again. Pastor Samuels rushed into the kitchen where his wife was starting to do the evening dishes. It's the FBI! The FBI? Shh, where are the children? They're playing in their rooms. Put them to bed and don't forget to call Carol. Carol, their next-door neighbor, had agreed to come over and get the kids if they were arrested, and the Samuels wanted her to be on the lookout in case they were to be taken out in cuffs. Remember what we talked about? She nodded, headed for the kids' bedroom, and the agents knocked yet again. Pastor Samuels returned to the front door and opened it. I'm sorry, gentlemen. Please come in. The agents looked at each other, curious as to what had prompted the delay. They cautiously entered the living room. Sit down on the couch and make yourselves comfortable. Then Pastor Samuels reached into the top drawer of his desk and pulled out an MP3 recorder. He pushed the button to begin recording and set it down on the coffee table in front of the two men. They had a puzzled look on their faces. I'd like to have this conversation on record for posterity's sake. Okay, the wider of the two agents responded. We have some questions about the whereabouts of Mr. Jameson and Mr. Keaton. Me too. Do you have any idea where they are? We were hoping you would tell us. Well, I was hoping that you would tell me. I'm sorry to disappoint you, fellas. I do know that their protest at the Civic Center was peaceful. They're innocent. Do you know where they could be? David and Jared used to fantasize about going to Mexico to live out their lives, caring for hundreds of abandoned children in the orphanages. Oh, really? Search for them down there if you like, but I've got to warn you, you're wasting your time. There's no way in the world those fellows blew up that building. David's a pacifist. The larger of the two agents leaned forward and with a slightly raised tone said, Mr. Ronald Samuels, we know you pastored these two men at your church. You know that they are suspects in the bombing of the Columbus Civic Center. If you know of their whereabouts and do not divulge this information, you could be charged with harboring a felon, in this case two felons, and terrorists responsible for killing the President of the United States. The consequences would be grave. You could be executed. Or worse, the other agent added, you could spend the rest of your life in solitary confinement 23 hours a day. Man, Ron Samuels rolled his eyes at their predictable threats and responded sarcastically, Sounds like hell without all the burning. You have any other questions? His wife entered the room and took a seat in a chair in the corner of the room. 
As a matter of fact, we do, for both you and your wife. The smaller of the two agents leaned back and put his arm over the top of the couch, intentionally displaying a shoulder holster with a black handgun. We know that several in your church are actively involved in protesting abortion. We need to know if you intend to continue your anti-abortion activity. You know we are already aware of the anti-gay, anti-choice activities of your church members, so there's nothing to hide. Then why are you asking? You come into my home flashing your weapons under your jackets and expect me to answer questions that are none of your business? I have a constitutional right not to be forced to incriminate myself. My wife and I have never and never would have an abortion. We are pro-abortion in some circumstances. Beside that, our opinions are personal. You're pro-choice in some circumstances? The smaller of the two agents asked in a disbelieving tone. Pro-abortion, Samuels reiterated. Ma'am, and you? She cleared her throat and glanced at her husband with confusion. He nodded at her and she said, I concur with my husband. If there aren't any more questions, Ron Samuel said, I have a question for the both of you. What is your opinion on abortion? The two agents were stumped. They had never had the tables turned on them like this before. Please answer the simple question. We don't want to argue with you. Why not? Pastor Samuels leaned forward and glanced back and forth at his two guests. What are you afraid of? We would never have an abortion. Other than that, we would like to keep our opinions to ourselves. I'm glad we understand each other, Pastor Samuel stood and headed for the door. Without further ado, let me see you two gentlemen to the door. The agents stood and followed their host to the front door as the larger of the two agents reached into his coat pocket for a business card. Pastor Samuels opened the door for them and then reached for their business card. Of course. Have a good evening. Drive carefully. Pastor Samuels shut the door and turned to cast a conniving grin at his obviously distraught wife. What do you mean you're pro-abortion in some circumstances? Ron shrugged. I'm for aborting abortionists, I suppose. Tyrants, too. I can't believe they just let us go just like that. I was expecting a more intensive interrogation. As the two agents walked to the car, the smaller said to the other, Did you drop the bug? Yes, it was a perfect placement. He had inserted a needle-like recorder and transmitter device into the crease on the edge of a couch cushion. Six days had passed since the bombing, and David and Jared were growing restless. Pro-lifers were getting arrested all across the nation, and their punishment was very subjectively dispensed. The sanction depended upon their attitude, as one federal prosecutor described it. Those who expressed remorse for intimidating women and healthcare practitioners in articles, speeches, or at abortion clinics were required to attend the NEA-approved sensitivity seminars. Some were required to do community service hours in local Planned Parenthood facilities. Hardened, unrepentant anti-abortionists were facing prison terms and fines, a portion of which were distributed to abortion clinics. Hundreds of pro-life activists and dozens of pro-life leaders left their homes and went into hiding to evade arrest. The protests in front of abortion clinics came to a screeching halt. The abortion industry could finally take a deep breath. Jared and David sat around a campfire as the sun began to set. They ate the last of the roasted squirrel that Jared had caught in a trap. You know, Pastor, Jared said as he wiped his mouth with the back of his hand, it's just a matter of time and we're going to get caught. The government's resources are endless. We're a sinful nation, David said. We deserve the tyranny that's coming. I want to go down fighting, not hiding, said Jared. Better to die for freedom than to slink away with an alias content with damage control. Let's just pray that they catch the real perpetrators of this crime so we can go home. David tossed the squirrel thigh bone into the dimming campfire. Then what? It's not just about us, Pastor. The whole government's gone antichrist on us. If we don't fight for our freedoms, our children will be slaves. That comment provoked a deep, sorrowful sigh from David. His thoughts were constantly on his wife and children. He prayed that they were safe. Jared opened his pocket knife and began to whittle on a piece of firewood. I want to go down to the city tomorrow. We're going to need some supplies. Jared wore a hooded sweatshirt and a baseball cap to help conceal his identity. 
It took him about three hours to hit 161 and about an hour's walk parallel to the road through standing corn and miles of pastures until he came to a small corner gas station. When he did not see any police cars, he entered the store and walked to the newspaper stand. He took a USA Today and a Columbus dispatch, picked up some matches, food, drinks, and toilet paper. He looked up at the mirror over his head, and to his horror, he saw a police officer enter the building. He immediately ducked, then felt like an idiot for doing so. He looked around futilely for a place to hide. He realized that the angled mirror over his head would allow him to be seen, so he acted like he had dropped something. He looked back and saw a men's restroom. Coming around the corner of the aisle was Elijah Slate, who recognized Jared. Hey, uh, what's his name again? Jared did not hear Elijah's call. Fearful of the police officer recognizing him, he stood up and quickly entered the restroom. He saw the officer and turned toward him just as he shut the door and locked it behind him. Elijah saw the officer speaking to the cashier and realized what Jared was trying to do. The officer walked past Elijah to the restroom and tried to open the door. Once he realized it was locked, he knocked firmly. Jared responded, Just a minute! Elijah went and stood beside the officer. Looking for somebody, officer? Elijah pointed at the sheet of paper the officer held in his hand. The officer opened the half-folded paper and showed him a photograph of David and Jared. Have you seen these men? Elijah studied the photographs, apparently obtained from a previous arrest. What'd they do? The officer ignored the question and knocked on the door again. How long are you going to be? I'm not sure. Probably a while. Jared tiptoed around the small bathroom as if looking for a place to hide. He stood on the counter and tried to push the drywall on the ceiling to see if it would give. In so doing, the warped wood under his feet buckled and made a loud popping noise. Everything all right in there? The officer knocked on the door again. Uh, yeah. In a moment, the officer glanced at his watch and then quickly exited the building. A moment later, Elijah knocked and said in a deep, bellowing voice, You're under arrest. Open the door now or I'll kick it down and tase you. Momentarily, Jared slowly opened the door, his face pale. When he saw Elijah standing there with a grin on his face, he angrily slammed it shut. Elijah laughed and knocked again. Come on, open up. Jared opened the door and exclaimed, You jerk, you scared me half to death. Let's get out of here. Wait, I gotta buy this stuff. Jared reached into the bathroom to grab the goods he'd placed on the counter. No, the officer showed the cashier your picture. She'll recognize you. My picture? Just leave it there. Keep your head down and follow me. I've got what you need in my van. Elijah and Jared walked quickly out of the store to Elijah's black van. David was startled when he saw that Jared had company. David, I'd like you to meet a friend. David grinned. Are you the man who was arrested inside the Civic Center? That's me. David stood to shake his hand and they wound up hugging each other. How in the world did you two bump into each other? Jared then told him the story of their second meeting and they had a long laugh together. You have got to be kidding me. That was a close call, said Jared as he sat on the ground next to the fire and tossed some wood into it. We have been in some close calls during our time, David said to Elijah. We used to squirt superglue into the keyhole of the doors to the abortion clinic, said Jared. Really? Elijah pulled a small log closer to the fire and sat upon it. The goal was to save as many lives as possible without hurting anybody and without getting caught. Jared opened his pocket knife and began to whittle a stick of wood into a sharp point. I once poked a hole in the Freon line of an outdoor air conditioning unit at an abortion facility in the middle of summer. It closed down for three days until it was repaired. Anything we could do to shut down their business was fair game. Except hurting people, David added. Did you ever do any of that illegal stuff, David? asked Elijah. Nope. My protest is lawful, and he doesn't do anything illegal since he's been on staff at the church, right? Say, said Jared as he turned to face Elijah, what do you do for a living? Believe it or not, I used to be a police officer. Jared stopped whittling on his stick and stared at Elijah in disbelief. Please tell me you are kidding. I just told you all that stuff and now you tell me you're a police officer? I used to be a police officer. Our criminal justice system is a pathetic joke. Criminals would be back on the street flipping us off before we could even finish the paperwork. Jail's an insufficient deterrent as it is, and still we release them early for overcrowding. System's broken. All the plea bargaining, the greedy lawyers and crooked judges, it all just ate me up. 
You don't have to convince us, David assured him. What's keeping you brothers in Ohio? Jared shrugged, but David answered, We are hoping things will settle down and they will catch the real perpetrators so that we can clear our names. I have a wife and three little girls, and they need me. Why don't you guys come back to Texas with me? Get your family and we will all head southwest. Jared looked at David with eyebrows raised in anticipation like a little boy who was just offered candy and looks to his parents for permission to eat it. We're a nationwide phenomenon, said David. They will be looking for us everywhere. But the further you get away from the scene of the crime, the safer you will be. Besides, Texas has always been pulled kicking and screaming into the government's socialist schemes. If there is any state that will put its foot down and draw the line in the sand, it will be Texas. David thought for a moment. Hmm. Texas. If things get worse, Mexico is right across the border. I'd have to get my family, he said. Of course. David took a deep breath, his eyes searching the glowing embers. Let me pray on it tonight. Elijah, who slept beside the fire, was up at the crack of dawn. He nudged David's tent and threw a few pieces of wood into the circle of stones that surrounded a heap of cooling white ashes. David, rise and shine! I hear ya, David said from inside his tent to let Elijah know that he was awake. You going to Texas with me or what? David opened the tent, stepped out into the dawn, and stretched. He had spent most of the night praying about this very thing. If I can get my family, we'll go. Jared, who returned from the forest with some dry wood in his arms, overheard David's answer. Pastor Samuels is not answering the walkie-talkie. We're either too far away or his batteries are dead. We'll have to go ask him where Darlene and the kids are staying, said David, and we'll pick them up and be on our way. If Pastor Samuels hasn't relocated to a jail cell by now, responded Jared, or Homeland Security torture chamber. Thank you for listening to this reading from The Revolt of 2020. This chapter was read by Daniel Meyer and engineered by Park Leacock. The Revolt of 2020 and its sequels, The American Tyranny of 2020 and The Uncivil War of 2020, are available for purchase at docjohnstonnovels.com. That's docjohnstonnovels.com. O Lord, turn us back to you. Forgive our sins and heal our land.